We're going to be doing something a little bit different this morning. We've been going through um, Zechariah in our sermon series we've been calling the Gospel in Graffiti, but we're instead going to be springboarding off this, um, these two chapters this morning as we think about responding to abuse and understanding abuse and how we respond to that as a church family. So we're not going to be doing so much of an exposition of the text, though we're definitely going to be diving in. We're more going to be understanding what this tells us about how we respond to abuse, what we see here about the nature of abusive leadership, and how the Lord feels about that, and then how we can see in the Lord Jesus Christ a very different model of leadership. Now, the reason we're doing this particularly at this point in time is because the evangelical world um, has been rocked by numerous abuse scandals, and various reviews have been done and are continuing to be done at the moment, some of which have come out and others which are coming out imminently. So we had a review into Crowded House, which is a church movement up in the northwest of England, and the abusive patterns of behavior of um, particularly its leader, Steve Timmis, that came out a few months ago. In America recently, almost international news was the horrendous abuse, sexual abuse and emotional abuse of Ravi Zacharias and Ravi Zacharias International Ministries and the way they responded terribly as an organization seeking to minimize it and cover it up until it fully came to light recently. We've had in the UK um, ongoing engagement with the issue of John Smythe's historic abuse within UN camps and a review is coming out in the summer and imminently a review is coming out into the abuse of Jonathan Fletcher, the former rector at a church in southwest London, Emmanuel Wimbledon. So there's a number of these reviews coming out at the moment as these abuses are brought into the light, finally, thankfully. Now, of course, I'm conscious as I even talk about that and just go through that list, there will be a number of different reactions within the church family. Um, a recent um, survey um, by uh, England and Wales, Crime Survey of England and Wales, said that estimated one in five adults in England and Wales has been the victim of some sort of abuse as a child. Now, of course, that's only going to increase the numbers of people when we count for abuse that happens as adults as well. So I'm conscious as I I talk for this, for a number, maybe even for many in the church family, this is not abstract. This is touching on some very painful things for you, and I'd like to refer you to what Judah said. Please reach out. Please talk to us. We want to be here and walk with you as you process this. For others, though you might not be directly affected, just the the reverberations of the kind of blast radius of abuse means that it shakes your confidence in the church. You start to think, how can abuse happen in the church? Shouldn't the church be different? Can I trust any church? After all, some of these churches seem trustworthy. Some of these organizations did, and they weren't. What about Inspire St. James? And you want to ask questions about that. For others, it profoundly undermines your confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, after all, if the church that bears his name sometimes has abusive leaders? What does that mean about him? Can can I trust him? It shakes our our faith in him as it shakes our faith in the church. And there'll be some others as well who just don't want to talk about this. You're probably thinking, look, we're dealing with enough. COVID coming out of lockdown, all the pain we've been through in the last year, we've got to talk about this as well. Can't we just leave this? There will be a range of responses. But I want us to be shaped by God's response, and what we see in this passage is what we see consistently as the pattern throughout all of Scripture, which is that God does never minimizes abuse. He never covers up the abuse that might happen even in his, amongst his own people in the, within the church. He brings it to light 
so that it can be exposed, so that justice can be done, so that people can be called to repentance, we're going to see that God speaks with compassion and care, that He sees those who are wounded, that He sees you if you've been wounded, but He's equally strong enough in His compassion to do something about it. So let's um, look at this passage together. As we do so, we're going to focus for most of the the sermon on the false shepherds and trying to understand that, and then we're going to move and look at a very different mode of leadership and the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. But let's look first of all at the false shepherds as we understand the nature of abuse. In chapter 10, verse 3, we see the Lord's heart towards um, those who are victims and His heart towards those who have committed abuse. Verse 3, my anger burns against these shepherds, these false shepherds, and I will punish the leaders, for the Lord Almighty will care for His flock, the people of Judah. See the two sides of it there? The Lord is against false leadership, and He cares for the victims. He cares for survivors. And the strength of His compassion for survivors is matched by the ferocity of His anger at those who commit abuse. And what is this Um, false leadership. Well, I want us to see, first of all, that it's a misuse of power. It's a misuse of power. Coming forward as the passage develops in chapter 11, verse 5, we're told this. Their buyers slaughter them and go unpunished. Those who sell them say, praise the Lord, I am rich. Their own shepherds do not spare them. Now, what's going on here? Well, you see, sheep are vulnerable animals. That's why sheep need shepherds and horses and cows don't, because sheep are far more vulnerable. And so a shepherd is there to care, to protect the flock. A shepherd has power over sheep. A shepherd is strong. He has a staff. He's physically more able than a sheep. And here's the thing. Abusive leadership isn't just a failure of leadership, but it's a distortion of leadership. It's a subversion, a complete reversal of the dynamics. Because a shepherd has power to protect. That is what a shepherd should do. But abuse literally means misuse. Dr. Diane Langberg, who spent her life um, as a doctor of psychology engaging with um, survivors of abuse, and particularly survivors of abuse within the church, points this out in a number of her excellent books and talks online, which um, we'll highlight to you in the coming week. She points out that abuse literally means to misuse, to misuse power. In other words, the strength of the shepherd to protect the flock is suddenly now used against the flock. And we see it here as the buyers slaughter them and go unpunished, those who sell them. So they're literally selling out the sheep for their own ends, getting rich when they should be protecting them, using the sheep for their selfish ends to get things from them. That's abuse, misuse of power. And it can happen wherever there's a person who has power by virtue of status or position or authority or physical strength or knowledge Wherever there is a leader who has power, there is the potential for abuse. Think of a father. A father has significant power over the children. And it's power that God gives to care and nurture and serve those children. Physical power, um, intellectual power, uh, power of personality maybe. But if a father turns that power against the child to wound the child for their own distorted lusts or or desires, then that is abuse. Or in the church, any position of authority, um, a ministry leader, a church leader, has power by virtue of that position. Power of status, power of position, power of personality, power of knowledge. And if that power is not used to serve and to build up, but instead for their own selfish ends, to manipulate others and to push down, 
That is abuse. It's a misuse of power. But notice, not only is it misuse of power, but notice what's motivated, what motivates it. Here we see in chapter 10, verse 2, that it's motivated by idolatry. The idols speak deceitfully. Diviners see visions that lie. They tell dreams that are false. They give comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wander like sheep oppressed for lack of a shepherd. Do you see how Zechariah links the idol here of power with the false shepherding? And this is something we've got to get. It's not so much that power corrupts. There are many people out there who wield power for good ends, even non-Christians, right? It's not that power corrupts. It's that the idol of power corrupts. Well, what do I mean by the idol of power? I mean, idol in the Old Testament is primarily um, worshipping physical idols, statues that were false gods, no gods at all, instead of worshipping the true and living God. But also the Old Testament also opens up for us, and this gets developed in the New Testament, that we can worship conceptual idols. A good thing made by God becomes a bad thing when we treat it as a divine thing or an ultimate thing, when we ascribe it ultimate importance in our lives. And so power is a good thing that God gives us as human beings, made in His image to care, to build up. But when we distort it, when we make it ultimate, when we say, I must have power, I must have absolute power and dominion, then it becomes an idol. And that is what often lies behind the hideousness of abuse. You know, one of the notable features of the abuses that I mentioned earlier is that in all four cases, you see very clearly the idol of power. You can read it in the Crowded House Review report that's come out that Steve Timmis consistently and persistently operated a mode of leadership that was resistant to any critique, defensive. He had to have absolute power. You couldn't question him. He would bully and blackball and label those who questioned him, who rose up against his power, and would use his power to kind of cast them out of the crowded house movement um, by dismissing them and labeling them. But not just in that as well. Jonathan Fletcher, he would regularly give advice to ministers. In fact, I myself have been given this advice by someone who had got it from Jonathan Fletcher, that any curate that is an assistant minister in the church should not stay longer than three to four years in a church. Why? Because he said they've become too powerful. Think of that for a moment. A partner in gospel ministry, someone to serve alongside, becomes a threat to your power? That is not right. And yet that is parroted around within conservative evangelical perspectives as some kind of wisdom for how to handle your curates. That's the idol of power. Jonathan had to have power. He had to wield absolute power. You couldn't question him. And the review coming out will no doubt expose that. One of the particular ways this gets um, talked about or, or raised in evangelical circles without realizing it is the importance of the so-called strategic ministry. Often in evangelical circles, we talk of strategic ministries, as in ministries where they can have a disproportionate impact for the kingdom of God. So behind the UN camps, and I myself um, attended um, some of the Titus Trust camps in the early 2000s for two or three years, and we would regularly be told as younger leaders that this was a very strategic ministry. And the reason it was very strategic, they would say, is because you are engaging with and reaching for the gospel public school um, children, and they will go on by virtue of their power and their privilege and the elite system they're part of to be leaders in the country. And therefore, if we win them for Christ, we were told, think of the benefit for the country. It's very strategic. Now, initially, that sounds very appealing. 
And of course, everyone needs the gospel. Public school children, state school children, all people need the gospel. No one's denying that. But the rationale was reach the few, the elite, and you'll reach the country, you'll influence the country. And when you pause to think of it for a moment, that is just not the path of the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ did not come into a strategic ministry. He was born into poverty. He was raised in Nazareth. And even the disciples at the time say, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? It's a backwater. It's a nothing. He wasn't born into a palace. He was born into poverty. He wasn't born into privilege. He was born into obscurity. And he lived a life on the margins. And he died giving up any power that he had in the world's eyes because it was through his death that he subverted the idol of power, that he showed what real power is, that the weakness of God is stronger than the power of this world. And so strategic ministries, so-called, need to be carefully evaluated whether we are just unconsciously baptizing the norms of worldly idols and trying to co-opt them into our ministry. And it's not just um, Ewan Camps. It's no doubt why Ravi Zacharias was so keen to attach his ministry to Oxford University to exaggerate his academic credentials, all something on public record now. Because Oxford University, of course, is one of the top two universities in the world, and therefore you can leverage that power for the good of the gospel. It's strategic. And I could go through the other ministries as well. Emmanuel Wimbledon was seen by Jonathan Fletcher as a very influential part of London. Wealth, prestige, southwest London, Wimbledon, and it's a strategic pulpit, people would say. But when you strip it all back, it's unthinking adoption of the world's norms and baptizing the idol of power. Zechariah 4 verse 6 has already warned us in this book. Remember these words, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. In other words, when the Lord works, he very often takes on the idols of the world's power and shows them that real power is given in humility. It's when you give it up. Because here's the thing, when you give up power, you multiply power because you give it away. But when you try to hold on to it, you make it an idol of power. It corrupts and distorts you, and you end up losing it. Not so with you, says the Lord. So a misuse of power motivated by idolatry. And thirdly, I want us to see from these verses, under God's judgment. Chapter 10, verse 3, notice these words. My anger burns against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders, for the Lord Almighty will care for his flock. God's compassion, God's love is shown, not that he doesn't get angry, no, 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 his love is shown in that he is prepared to get angry when he sees injustice. Will he do something about it? Yes, he will. Look forward at chapter 11, verse 3. Listen to the wail of the shepherds. Their rich pastures are destroyed. Listen to the roar of the lions. The lush thicket of the Jordan is ruined. And then look at chapter 11, verse 17, as he pronounces, Woe! Woe to the worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm in his right eye. May his arm be completely withered, his right eye totally blinded. Look, I, I take no comfort in speaking these words, but this is Scripture speaking, so let's take it seriously. And I actually think there is great comfort in this for victims, for survivors of abuse. Because one of the most painful things I know from speaking to survivors is that you feel like no one sees you. 
You, you feel like no one understands you. You feel like no one's with you, right? You're standing alone. As Judas said earlier, it's isolating. And so, of course, if you're a Christian, you think, well, the Lord doesn't see me. I mean, after all, why didn't he do something about it? Now, please hear me. There, there are no simplistic answers here. I'm not here to give those today. But the Lord does see you. The Lord cares about you. The Lord stands with you. And the authentic church will stand with you too. And so he will judge those who abuse their power. His anger burns against the false shepherds. Unless we think, well, okay, that was the case in the Old Testament. Isn't the God of the New Testament a God of forgiveness and compassion and mercy? First of all, notice the way that compassion, the Lord's care, is linked to anger. That the two sides are the same coin. Because if a father loves a child, the father's anger will burn against those who abuse that child. And the Lord does love you very much. And that's why Jesus says things like this in the New Testament. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive up demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, says the Lord, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers, Matthew 7, 22 to 23. He pronounces woe on false leadership and the abusive leaders in Matthew 23. And then read what Jesus says to churches, because it's not only leaders, but also if a church or a whole Christian organization has failed in this way, has minimized or covered it up, if they do not repent, there are grave warnings for them. Read the letters to the churches in Revelations 2 and 3. See the warnings there. Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, which I think arguably is the most applicable church to the conservative evangelical kind of constituency, because he says to the church in Ephesus, I see your concern for truth, for doctrinal purity. I see you persevere, you press on, both markers within conservative evangelicalism. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, Jesus is saying to the church in Ephesus, I know you know the Scriptures. I know you're doctrinally faithful. I know you've even stood up for doctrinal purity and persevered in it. And to a degree, I commend you for that. But you've stopped loving. You've been too concerned with faithfulness, not enough concerned with love. Where's the care? Where's the compassion? Where's the passion? And if you don't repent and start caring for the poor and the vulnerable in your midst, those abused, then he warns them, I will remove the lampstand, which means he will remove the work of the Spirit from that ministry in that church, and he will remove the gospel witness from that church. Now, my question to us is, do we take this seriously? I've heard a number of Christian leaders talking about the situations of abuse that we've already mentioned, and I've heard many of them talking about the way the devil is having a field day, we must pray against the devil having a field day. And it is true that the devil is to a degree behind this. But here's a more chilling question for you. Could the Lord's chastening hand be behind this? Removing the lampstand from whole churches, whole Christian organizations, if they do not repent? Well, you say, well, I mean, that, the Lord wouldn't do that. You know, we've, we've been to the right conferences. You know, we know the doctrinal truth. Really? Read the letter to the churches in Revelation. If you do not repent, he says, 
And I take this incredibly seriously. I examine my own heart before the Lord here. If you cover things up, if you do not respond in love, the Lord will chastise that church. He will remove his lampstand. Judgment will fall. Not just an organizational name change. Not just a closing down of one name of a camp only to continue the ministry under the same leaders. Not just a change of a few trustees. Not just trying to keep it all quiet with a non-disclosure agreement, an NDA. Not just saying, well, I can't properly apologize because the barristers that I've employed and spent tens of thousands of pounds on have told me that I shouldn't apologize properly to the victims because, hey, it, it might mean that I have to therefore pay some restitution. Don't you think the Lord sees that? I will remove the lampstand. So heaven forbid, let's look in the mirror right now as a church, that we ever do that. Transparency. Not just verbalized transparency, but obvious transparency. Repentance. Amplifying the voice of the survivors. Listening to them. Standing with them. Paying restitution where it's required for the hurt and the pain they've been through, to support them as they get healing through psychotherapy, whatever's needed. That's what's required. That's the law of love. And my friends, we have to stand up for this. If we see our brothers and sisters, organizations we are associated with, we might know, not doing that, we need to be brave enough not just to toe the party line, but to speak up about it. Because it is not a godly pattern of leadership a misuse of power, motivated by idolatry, under God's judgment. As you look at all of that, you can start to wonder, well, what kind of leadership possibly could bring redemption into such a mess? And I want us to close now by seeing the wonderful, godly, good shepherd we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have a chance to really look carefully at this, but in chapter 11, it's kind of an enacted parable as Zechariah is asked to act certain things out to kind of make the point about leadership. First of all, he's told to clothe himself and to act out with two staffs, godly shepherding. And he's told to shepherd the flock of Israel, God's people, with godly, faithful shepherding. So he takes up two staffs, verse 7. One staff called favor, that is compassion and care. One staff called union, that is trying to keep God's people united together. And he tries to shepherd the flock. He even, verse 8, gets rid of some of the false shepherds. And you think that that might be enough, but sadly the stubbornness of sin means that that doesn't work. Verse 8, the flock detested me and I grew weary of them. So the Lord then says to him, well, okay, let's try a different mode of leadership. Give them over now to ungodly Worldly shepherds, verse 15, then the Lord said to me, take again the equipment of a foolish shepherd, for I'm going to raise up a shepherd over the land who will not care for the lost. In other words, foolish means kind of worldly. He's saying, you've tried faithful leadership, now let's try worldly leadership. Let's give them over to the, to the worldly leaders of Babylon and Persia and see how that works. But again, it doesn't bring change to the heart of God's people. So here's the question, if faithful leadership doesn't work, if kind of worldly leadership, you know, dog-eat-dog, dog, you know, devouring the sheep doesn't work. What kind of leadership will work? How the Lord Jesus Christ must have meditated on this chapter of Scripture when he stood up in John chapter 10 and said these words, I am the good shepherd. Not just faithful leadership, far more than that. Certainly not worldly leadership, far better than that. But the good shepherd, why? Who lays down his life for the sheep. 
we see a picture of it here in chapter 11, verses 12 to 13, where they try to pay off Zechariah. They're so fed up with his leadership, they say, take it, take 30 pieces of silver, just, just be gone with you. Take the money and just leave. We're paying you off, just leave. Now, why 30 pieces of silver? Well, if you read Exodus, 30 pieces of silver was the price that was to be paid if ever manslaughter occurred. So if a human being died as a result of accident, then you had to pay restitution of 30 pieces of silver. It was a lot of money. It was the payment for a life. It was the value of a human life. So when Judas goes to the chief priests, they know what they're doing when they pay Judas 30 pieces of silver. They're saying, this is the value for his life. Give him up for lost. Give him up for dead. And Jesus knows Judas is going to do that because it's all part of his plan. He knows that the only way to subvert the norms of the idol of power, to change the way that we think about power, is to have all the power and then to do the most remarkable thing of all, to give it up, even to the point of death, death on a cross. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life. He lays it all down for his sheep. Now, when you think of it, that makes no sense at all. Because if the shepherd is dead, how can the shepherd protect the flock? The only way it makes sense, if somehow, by dying, that shepherd ultimately protects the flock. That shepherd ultimately destroys the threats to the flock. And of course, that's what happens. When Jesus dies on the cross, he says, look at all this worldly power. Look at the way the distortions of the human heart want to take power and use it for themselves. Mine, mine, mine. Must be first. Must have it. Must get mine. If I'm in leadership, it's for me, right? Worldly power misuses power for the sake of self by subjugating others. The Lord Jesus Christ on the cross gave up his power for the sake of others by laying his life down for them. You know, I'm conscious that there are even some people in the liberal church who say, you know what the problem with evangelicals is? You know why we see abuse in the evangelical church is because of that theology they have of Jesus dying on a cross, you know, blood and, you know, God disciplining the son. And, you know, see, that's the problem. If they just ditch that theology, then the abuse wouldn't happen. Of course, that makes no sense given that there's abusive patterns of leadership outside the church and in the liberal church and in the high church as well. Because it's not the theology, and they've got the theology wrong. Because it's not that there's death and blood. The great subversion of that narrative of abuse, the opposite of it, the complete reverse of it, is not to take away any sense of harm or hurt, but it's to say, I will allow myself to be hurt as a leader for the sake of others. I will lay down my power even to the point of sacrificial death. That's what Jesus does. And when you think of it, that is the only thing, surely, that can really reassure a survivor that Jesus is for you. If he merely comes in and wields power, you think, well, he, he might wield power to hurt me. But if he gives it all up for you, if he lays his life down for you, you kind of go, he's not a threat. He loves me to the point of actually identifying with my pain because he really died on the cross. He was punished for me. He's not a threat. He's the good shepherd. And it starts to heal your heart. And how can Christian organizations start to restore trust? By modeling this leadership that says any power we have, we will give up for the good of others. 
We won't hoard it. We won't try to be strategic with it. Sometimes we'll do the least strategic thing. We'll just give it up for the sake of others. And the more you see that, the more you start to see godly patterns of leadership that can lead to restoration and healing. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. As I close, one of my favorite films is Gladiator. Last year was the 20th anniversary of Gladiator. Sometimes when Rebecca and I are going to have a romantic evening in, I say, let's watch Gladiator. And the great thing about Gladiator is that the original ending was changed, changed by Ridley Scott. This kind of came out a year ago, but it's been kind of in the ether on the internet for a while. In the original ending, and I'm sorry to give it away, but it's been out for 20 years, so where have you been? You should have watched it by now. Commodus dies, but he dies as Maximus wields his power as a better warrior, as a better leader, and he defeats him in the arena. But the problem with that was it didn't make an epic film. Why? Because it just turns the film into a revenge movie. Maximus is out for revenge at the beginning for the wrong done to him, and he gets revenge at the end, and it's not restorative. But Ridley Scott, I like to think, you know, knew that the only way it could be restorative, the only way it can be an epic, is when we see that Maximus realizes that the opposite of Commodus's abusive power is to lay down his life. And so Maximus dies. He gives up his life for Rome. He lays it all down. And that's love. That's sacrifice. My friends, that's the gospel. I am the good shepherd, Jesus Christ says, who lays down his life for the sheep. If you want to know which churches you can trust, look for that pattern of leadership. Don't look for strategy. Don't look for strength. Look for humility and weakness and the willingness of leaders to lay down their life for the sheep because that shows you they really follow the good shepherd. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we know how hard this is to even talk about this, the pain of it, Lord God, we have just a sense for survivors of what they must go through. Heal them, bring restoration as they look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Might they know that he is their good shepherd, different to every other mode of leadership, one who lays down his life for the sheep, and one who, because the greatest hour of human sin could be brought to glory, because the greatest hour of darkness could be brought for restoration at the cross, even abusive situations can be redeemed by you. And I don't say that lightly, Lord. But might we know that you can redeem all things and one day you will at that last day. And therefore, please help us to be a church here of transparent uh, practices of humility. If we get things wrong, would we repent? Might we be conscious that you are evaluating us, the Lord Jesus who walks amongst the lampstands? And might we model and live out an authentic pattern of gospel-centered leadership that lays it down, that gives up power for the sake of others and for their good. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.